My name is Pastor Garrett. Um, I started here about two months ago. People call me PG. Um, I don't know if I like that. Yeah, keeping it PG, I don't know. It's not a huge, I don't know. Uh, Pastor Matt and Pastor Chris have been so transparent and honest in their stories. We've been going through a series called Hope Has a Name about how Jesus has saved us. Um, and has ultimately revealed to us his lordship. And I, I want to start uh, transparent as well. Um, I think actually a good place to start this morning is all the way um, back in how I failed my entry exam into preschool. <laughs> <laughs> the teachers that were conducting the examination instructed me to build a tower with, with blocks, so I did. And it was, it was, yeah, it was amazing, I don't remember. But my, my parents were spectators in the examination and they were watching just as horribly proud um, of me building this wooden block structure. And once I completed the tower, one of the teachers just came and knocked it down. And then she told me to rebuild it again. And I stood paralyzed and I, I couldn't rebuild it. And that was a mark against me. But after the examination was complete, the instructors came to my parents afterwards and told my parents that I had cognitive deficiencies and that I should be held back a year from preschool. And my parents asked the, the reasoning behind their analysis. And the instructor said that I built the tower the first time just fine. But then when we had told him to rebuild it, he couldn't rebuild it again. And my, my parents really went to bat for me. Uh, they kind of just said, you know, he wasn't too dull or stupid to like rebuild it again. He was sincerely wondering why you knocked it down and was hurt that you knocked it down in the first place and then asked him to rebuild it. Why would he rebuild something that you knocked down and you might knock down again? So the instructors weren't convinced and my, my parents eventually took me somewhere else and uh, the story doesn't end and I never went to school again. <laughs> I'm just still upset by my tower being knocked down. My parents knew who I was, a, a, a deeply shy and sensitive kid. They, they, they noticed some odd behaviors in me at a very young age. When I was around five years old, my mom told me that every time I would get up from sitting on the couch, I would try and pull the hem of my shorts down so they'd be straight and even. And it had to be even. It had to be straight. I would also count the dots on the ceiling, and the dots would have to be an even number. It had to be. And one of the weirder ones, I, I told my mom, when I, I was around seven, I couldn't really articulate what I was doing. I just said, hey, mom, I'm playing a game with my teeth. And she's like, what? And she just kind of dismissed it. She didn't know what that meant. But what was happening, I was tapping like one side of my teeth, five sides, the other five sides, and it had to be even. It had to total an even number. Some of you may know where this is going. Um, but I indulged in these behaviors, these compulsions, not really knowing what they were or the consequences that these compulsions would inevitably lead to, which was a mental illness, a pathology, uh, something that's very common. It's called obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. Um, my parents didn't really think of anything of these behaviors growing up, because just because 
they really had no knowledge of, of what I was experiencing. And I don't know from experience, but from observation, as a parent, you kind of don't know sometimes what to address with your kids, right? Kids do things and then they grow out of them. Like, I know someone who's very near and dear to me from the ages of five to 10 that wanted to be a, a chicken. She, she legitimately was trying to pretend to be a chicken and would ask for hay for Christmas and birthdays to like make a nest. <laughs> it's just so, it's just so weird. And you know, and the parents must have been questioning for five years, like, do we let her grow out of it? Or do we take her to therapy? Like, but thankfully she, she did grow out of it and she no longer has a desire to be a mother hen. My point is that when I was a child indulging in these compulsive behaviors that were seemingly harmless came much more debilitating over time. And it cultivated an obsessive and anxious nature in me that inevitably led to panic attacks my senior year of high school and college. I remember the obsessive thought that I couldn't shake was that I was destined for hell and I was doubting my salvation. I remember my lowest point was at the beginning of college I was 50 pounds lighter than what you see now, laying in a pitch black maintenance closet in my dorm room building, laying face down with only the strength to muster, God, save me. Doubt and anxiety owned me. Darkness shrouded me. I was sinking, but God met me, saved me, and delivered me. So again, throughout this series, we've been trying to find... Uh, gospel stories that kind of mirror our testimonies, Pastor Chris, Pastor Matt, and myself. And the one I want to turn to is Jesus walking on the water in Matthew chapter 14. So if you would open your Bibles with me. We'll start in, uh, so Matthew chapter 14, Jesus walking on the water, Peter walking out to him, verses 22 through 23. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by the boat, by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves. For the wind was against them, and in the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. I want to look more closely at these verses line by line, and we'll start with verses 22 and 23. So we'll go back up and read immediately. 
he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So this account opens with the word immediately. And keep note of that word as we go through this passage. It implies that something happened before this account to prompt an immediate action. So before Jesus walked on the water, there was another account where it told that he fed 5,000 men along with even more women and children with five loaves of bread and two fish with 12 baskets left over. And this, this, the disciples had just seen this grandiose miracle of God feeding thousands of people with bread and fish that he multiplied from the little that was initially brought to Jesus. Amazing miracle. And then in a separate telling of this account with uh, feeding the 5,000 with bread and fish, the book of John, the writer lets us know that the people were intending to make Jesus king by force and that Jesus knew the intention of their hearts and the people to do so. So they they got out of there immediately at once with no time to waste. So after Jesus dismisses the crowds, he goes up on a mountain by himself to pray. Classic Jesus. He did that all the time in the Gospels and is still praying for us now. And isn't that amazing? He, he's still our advocate. He's at the right hand of the, of the Father. The name above every name ruling over the universe. Yet he still makes the time to pray and intercede for his, his children. By the way, if Jesus, the Son of God, makes time to pray alone, how much more should we? So to get the, the setting straight, the disciples departed on a boat in the water, and Jesus is now praying alone on a mountain. When evening came, starting at verse 23 to 24, when evening came, he, Jesus, was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So at this time, the disciples were in the midst of the sea and a long way off from where they knew Jesus was, with a wind strong enough to make their boat beaten by the waves. And the, the Hebrew word for wind is usually referring to a, a tempest or a storm. Continuing in verse 25, it says, And in the fourth Watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. So the fourth watch of the night is around 3 a.m., 6 a.m. Jesus comes to them, walking on the water. Now, if you've heard this story for the gazillionth time, Jesus walking on water doesn't amaze you. And even if you haven't, if you're maybe not too familiar with this account, um, you've more than likely heard it elsewhere, maybe in passing, and maybe discounted as a bedtime story. But, but sincerely, as a church, let's pause for a moment in the reality of what the disciples are witnessing. If we're going to be a church that proclaims that everything else passes away, but the, Lord, the word of the Lord stands forever, we need to stand firm in that this account is a supernatural account that it actually happened. The creator of the universe, our God, Jesus Christ, is displaying his transcendence, his power over the laws of physics. And how does he transcend over the laws of physics? It's because he legislated the laws of physics. He made them into being. He wrote them down. So it's around 3 a.m. or 6 a.m. and the disciples see this and are terrified and they go, ah, it's a, it's a ghost. 
And they cry out in fear. And now I've looked at this story and I've always thought to myself, how did they not know it was Jesus? Is there a wave in the way? Is he really far away? But notice what it says in the text. I didn't notice this before I've read this, but the disciples are terrified. They're crying out in fear. Fear makes us believe and see some strange things. Like I've woken up in the middle of the night, it's late, and I see a dark, shadowy figure in the corner of my bedroom, and with a mix of drowsiness and fear, I am convinced that that is a goblin. I'm walking around all day, safe, singing, goblins don't exist. But when it's 3 a.m. and I'm tired, I'm like, yep, nope, goblins exist. That's, that's, that's the way it is. And that's how quickly irrationality takes over. But then you turn on the light, and what is it? It's a coat rack with a fedora on top. But that's what's happening here. The, the, the disciples see Jesus, and their fear takes over because it's scary. And they think he's an apparition, a ghost that's coming to har- harm him. But really, it's the most comforting presence that you could ever see, the Son of God. So we continue in verse 27. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. There's that word immediately again. Jesus, knowing their fear, immediately tries to quell the doubt and calm them. And it must have alleviated some concern because as we go on to verse 28, Peter answers him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So Peter, in all his boldness, saying, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. The audacity of Peter, even after Jesus says that it's him. Peter still needs physics-defying proof, right, to quell his doubt. Peter is putting Jesus, the Son of God, to the test. And this is similar to an account of when Satan tempted Jesus in the desert in Matthew 4, right? Satan says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the temple, for it is written, the angels will catch you. But Jesus replies with a weightier passage and says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So Peter is saying the same thing. Lord, if it is you, and then Satan's like, if you are the son of God, there's obviously a a bit of a distinction here that a self-awareness that Satan is deliberately trying to tempt and test Jesus. I'm not sure if Peter is aware at all of how he's asking Jesus. And And Peter is asking something that everyone would think is ridiculous, a command to to walk on water that's that's impossible. Like, are you serious? You can't walk on water like Jesus can. It's brash. But I, I look at this and I'm like, I wish my prayers were more like Peter's. I wish my requests were more like his. Not not putting the Lord to the test. But to have boldness in childlike faith like Peter that he has no fear in asking the Lord to do the impossible. So Jesus responds to Peter in all of Peter's sin-infused audacity, the cocktail of fear and pride. And let's look how Jesus responds in verse 29. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. This verse is so comforting to me. If, if you're ever self-conscious about how you pray or doubt that Jesus would ever ask you, 
that Jesus would ever ask the audacious you, the anxious you, the can't find the right words you, the doubting you, to draw near to him. Let us approach boldly before the throne of grace in time of need. And knowing that Jesus, our advocate, demolishes our doubts with one word, come. Let us be childlike and ask the Lord to do the impossible in the spirit as it states in verse 29. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. It's beautiful. What grace. But then in verse 30, it says, but when he, Peter, saw the wind, he was afraid And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. I can't think of a better verse that encapsulates my my doubting mind in my walk with Christ. But let's go back and and, and read the verses uh, 28 through 30 put together. Let's get the full picture and context of what's happening. And, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Speaking to my brothers and sisters who've known Christ for a while, doesn't this kind of sound like what our walks with Jesus are like? In the beginning, we're zealous, bold, and with a childlike fervency, where we, like Peter, kind of jump out of the boat, not worried about what's happening, but feel like we're walking on the water and we have our eyes locked on Jesus. We have it fixed on Jesus. We don't care what's going on around us. But then as we get farther down into our walk, we, like Peter, see the wind and we lose our focus off of Jesus. And we pay more concern about the scariness that's happening around us. And like Peter we begin to sink. What what does the wind represent to you? What is the wind surrounding you that makes you fear and doubt and lose your focus off of Jesus and start to sink? And I just want to say for me personally that the wind for me was doctrine or teaching. I know that might sound a bit strange at first, but... um. I want to draw our attention to Ephesians chapter 4. You don't have to turn there with me, but it will be up on the screen. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 through 14, in which its imagery, uh, even about wind and waves, runs parallel to this story here in Matthew 14. It reads, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. I remember in the height of my panic attacks, there was was so much doctrine or, or teaching that I was reading and having been explained to me. Teaching from all spectrums and denominations and secularists and in which I was I was drowning trying to figure it all out. And, and, but, but also just so fearful of not getting the exact right answer that God wanted me to know. I was, so, I was so focused on every wind of doctrine that was swirling around me 
being tossed to and fro from trusting God to distrusting God, to being assured of salvation one moment and then being completely convinced that I was destined for hell. And the ironic thing is, is that I focused, I was so focused on the teachings of the Bible that I lost my eyes on the very word himself, Jesus Christ. I became afraid and overwhelmed and identified with the man described in James 1, which will be up on the screen. It says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I read this verse when I was young and it destroyed me. I identified with it so deeply and that I concluded that this is the way it is. I'm the double-minded man, unstable, and I shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. Not only am I a double-minded man, thoroughly confused in, in doctrine, but I'm a sinning wretch on top of it. I can't go to God like this. This snowballed day by day until I was just in a well of anxiety. It felt like a tornado in my head and depression coupled with the debilitating compulsions as I, until I found myself lying in a pitch black maintenance closet in my dorm room building, lying face down with only the strength to muster to say, God save me. I didn't feel like I was sinking like Peter. I felt like I was drowning. So if I identified as the double-minded and unstable man who would not suppose that he would receive anything from the Lord. How am I standing up here 12 years later preaching the good news of God's saving grace? And the answer is really simple. It's Jesus saved me. That's it. Let's look at Peter's similar situation. Of, let's look at another double-minded man in a story to help us gain a better understanding. Verses 30 and 31. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So in this story, it's Peter being held up by the power of Jesus, the Son of God, walking on the water, right? Peter noticing the wind and he starts to sink and the Lord immediately saves him. And how do we square those with the verses that we just read in James, right? Does, isn't don't the verses in the book of James imply that there's like no hope for the doubter? Don't the verses in James describe someone like Peter? It even has the same words with like imagery and, and wind and waves. We, before we jump back into James, I just wanna I just wanna say two lessons in, in doctrine and in reading your Bible. Just like in real estate, what are the three things that you draw your attention to when buying property? Location, location, and what's the third one? That's it. We have a similar concentration when reading the Bible. And instead of location, it's context, context, context. So I want to go back to James chapter 1, and, and I want to put back in a verse, uh, a verse that I left out. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. This verse isn't talking specifically, at least when I read it, like it's not talking about saving grace, it's specifically talking about wisdom, right? But I was reading this passage long ago as if it was a final determination on my standing with my Savior, So I read this verse and I go, yes, Lord, I do have a problem with doubt. I am unstable. And I have to echo the same request with my fellow doubter in the book of Mark and say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I remember there was a friend of mine that thought he could lose his salvation because of one verse that he read in Scripture. It's in Job chapter 1. It said, the Lord gives and takes away. Think of what that does to your mind. If you think that verse, if you take that verse and apply it to anything and how much you're teetering, he assumed that this verse meant that the Lord gives and takes away salvation in Christ when obviously in the context of the the book of Job, it just means that the Lord gives and takes away anything that's like the creation from creation, right? Job had lost everything in, in, in his story. He'd lost his children, livestock, health, but he never lost his relationship with God. Job was still saved by grace. But you see how you can read one verse and how this can get dangerous and messy. My friend picked out one verse and attributed it to something completely different, and it caused great torment in him, same as me. Here's another helpful reminder when reading the Bible that I learned from the um, A.W. Tozer. You cannot extract doctrine or teaching from one passage or verse alone. Everything that you read needs to be weighted with the rest of Scripture. We like to say here, Scripture interprets Scripture. We see the devil's craftiness here in Matthew 4 um, when he's using the word of God against Jesus himself, right? When when, um, Satan says, if you are the son of God, Throw yourself down from the temple. As it is written, the angels will catch you. Right? So Satan is using an actual verse in Psalm 91. But then Jesus comes to it with a weightier passage that takes precedence over the verse that Satan is using. Jesus says, but it is also written that you will not put the Lord your God to the test. And that is what I didn't understand when I'm reading these passages, right, about the doubting man in James, right? Satan used James chapter 1, the double-minded man unstable in in all his ways, as a final judgment on me saying, you will always be a double-minded man and unstable in all your ways. And I believed him. But what I should have said to Satan in those moments was like my king, Jesus Christ, Scripture. Right? So Satan says to me, you are a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. And I say, Satan, I am a double-minded man, but it is also written that Jesus took the final judgment that belonged to me. Satan, I am a double-minded man, but he took my double-minded sins on the cross. It is written that I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away, for the new has come. Satan, it is written that he will never leave me nor forsake me. 
Satan, it is written that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor anything else in all creation will ever separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But in that moment, I stopped at Satan's accusation and was scared to read another passage. And all I could think of was, Lord, save me. And that's what we see playing out here in verse 31. Despite Peter's doubt, he received the saving hand of grace that Jesus pulled him out of. It says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I remember in my own, in my own story, like Peter, only having the faith, the strength to say, Lord, save me. And after I said that, in utter desperation, the Lord gave me the strength and the imprint, the surrender to call my dad and say, I need help. So my mom and dad, being the hands and feet of Jesus, pulled me from sinking and helped me set up some counseling appointments to, to get me on a right course of renewing my mind and helping me to trust more deeply in the promises of the Lord. Jesus, in that moment, to me, reached out his hand, and I finally felt like I wasn't sinking any further. Now, notice in this, in this passage, it says, Jesus immediately... Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. In preparation for writing this message, that word really bothered me. I felt like there have been times in my life where I've asked the Lord to save me, and it didn't feel immediate like Peter had felt. He didn't, it, it, almost, it felt like a slow drag out of the water. Even in my situation with OCD, the saving or let alone the recovery didn't feel immediate. And I was like, Jesus, please help me understand this passage. Grant me wisdom. I'm not doubting, I promise. <laughs> Let's read verse 31 and continue to verse 32. It says, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And it hit me in verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind had ceased. So after reading verse 32, the Lord, the Lord displays here that Jesus did immediately save Peter from sinking, but you know Peter was still wet. He was probably really cold at 3 a.m. or whatever time it was, but, but in this verse it says, and when they got into the boat, then the wind had ceased. This implies that after Jesus saves Peter from sinking, the wind or the storm is still happening around them. Jesus is walking with Peter back to the boat while Peter is wet, cold, probably hanging on to dear life on Jesus when he's, while the waves are still boisterous. And what I saw is in this is that like Peter, Jesus did start working for me, right, immediately. And maybe not in ways that you don't expect, but it was a long and stormy walk back to the boat. 
I was saved immediately, but I was also being saved. That's the Christian life. Jesus saves you, but you are also being saved as you walk with him. I remember it was around an 18-month limp with Jesus until I felt safe in the boat and that the wind had finally calmed down. You know, or maybe not. The, the boat could represent our final rest in heaven with the Lord. Maybe this life is just the journey back to the boat with him. We look at Jesus' response to Peter after he takes hold of him. Right? Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? We might see these words from Jesus as demeaning or condescending. But let's put ourselves in the reality. If we, if we look back at the beginning of the passage, it starts with the word immediately. So immediately, just before this episode of Jesus walking on the water, Peter and the disciple, disciples witnessed Jesus feeding thousands of people with five loaves and two fish with 12 baskets left over out of thin air. Has anyone here ever seen someone multiply fish sandwiches? I haven't, but Peter did. And immediately after he became, he became the second human being recorded to walk on water on planet Earth. So given everything, given the miracles that he sees from Jesus, I can, I can see Jesus sincerely saying, what did I do? Why, why did you doubt? What did, what did I do or not do that caused you to doubt and take your eyes off of me? Right? Don't worry about the waves around you. I'm, I'm the master and commander of the waves. I find the words, uh, I find the words oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Unbelievably encouraging from my doubting mind. To all you fellow doubters out there who have struggled with the same doubt for years, notice how Jesus says this. He says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus acknowledges Peter's little faith. How, how small was his faith? Well, apparently it was, it was enough faith to call out to Jesus, acknowledging him, and acknowledging him as Lord and saying, save me. In church, if you have the little faith the size of a mustard seed to say, Lord, save me, you will be saved. It's not the deficiency of your faith that matters, but the sufficiency of your Savior. So whatever stage you're in your walk on, whether you've just gotten out of the boat, whether you're walking on water and not taking your eyes off Jesus, you've just been so fixed on him, or maybe you're, you've just noticed the wind and you're starting to sink, or maybe you're drowning. Maybe you feel like you've been sinking. Maybe you don't know who, who Jesus is. And as convinced by the scriptures, you know, we as a church, we don't believe in coincidences. We, we believe that Jesus brought you here to meet him wherever you are in your walk or if you haven't even gotten out of the boat. And we can proclaim together these, these miracles, these savings to the last two verses it says, and when they got into the boat, the wind had ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Let's pray.